Good evening, evening. and welcome to Sunday Night Live. We're a little bit down in our crowd tonight. Must have been that warm, nice day. Who knows? Well, tonight I want to start with a song as we often do. Let's, I'm going to use the PowerPoint. I don't do this, well, ever, so I'll probably get behind on it, but we'll try to keep up. Uh, this, is, this song is very dear to Lenora and I, and it's taken right from Psalm 124. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side. Funny story about that. Uh, my biggest funeral disaster happened and was kind of centered around this particular passage in Psalm 124. Now the song says, um, we have escaped the snare, but in the, in the text it says we have escaped the fowler's snare. And there was a period of time we'd just been introduced to this song. I absolutely loved it. And I, we sang it a lot where we were going to church, and, and we, I preached on this text, and I just fell in love with it. Because, I mean, what, what a powerful message. If the Lord hadn't been on our side, we would lose everything if it wasn't for the Lord. And in that text, so I was using that text a lot. Well, I got to ask to preach Sister Earlene's funeral. Sister Earlene was 94 years old. I loved her dearly. And she had been born to parents who were members at Sherrod Avenue when she was born, 94 years ago. And so she had been a part of that congregation for 94 years. And so she asked, her family asked me to do the funeral. I was honored to do so. I loved her. We had a close relationship. I preached that lesson and I got, as I often do, passionate about what I was saying in that funeral service. And the text I decided to use was Psalm 124. And I preached it passionately about the Lord is on our side. Sister Erlene was as faithful as a person can be, and she was. She was a godly, good woman. And then I got to the close of that, and I said, she has escaped all the pain and the suffering and all of the troubles of this world. She has escaped the fowler's snare, because that's what the text says, never to be bothered by the fowlers again. I forgot that her last name was Fowler. Half of the audience were fowlers, all of her kids, and I only can say that in humor now because her, her kids totally, I mean, I, I just was into what I was saying from that text, and afterwards they come up to me and shook my hand and they said, that was a lovely lesson, we know you loved our mama and she loved you, and I said, well, thank you, and her daughter said, and we're so glad she won't ever be bothered by any of the rest of us ever again. <laughs> To which I said, uh, to which I said, huh, what are you talking about? I, it, I hadn't even registered to me. She said, the Fowlers? And you have never seen a man fall over himself apologetically quite like that day. I am so sorry. I didn't even think about it. So um, I, I, that, this song will always stick in my mind in that text because of that grave mistake. But I'm sure her family is still giggling about that to this very day. All right. It's a beautiful song. I hope you enjoy it. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, the anger of the enemy would have swallowed us alive. Had it not been the Lord 
all right. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to examine verse 10 through verse 25 tonight. And as we've mentioned at great length, the book of 1 Peter is written to a group of believers who are about to suffer greatly at the hands of persecutors. In fact, it's written in the 60s AD. It's written probably from Rome Peter will make some references to the great Babylon. He talks about being in the great Babylon. And that can't mean the Babylon of old. Because the Babylon of old was completely destroyed. And God says it would never be rebuilt. And in the time of Jesus and in the time of the apostles, there was no Babylon. It was just a wasteland. So Peter, when he talks about Babylon, that can be used figuratively. Babylon was the seat of the world's first great empire. And so, in essence, you would call any great seat of power Babylon. So he uses that expression, Babylon. He's writing from Rome, and Rome, right about this time, in the very near future, is going to have a new man named Emperor by the name of Nero. Nero will be completely and utterly insane. In addition to being evil as most of the Roman emperors were, you know, completely worldly in their outlook, completely self-centered. His insanity caused him to do some incredible things, including setting a fire to Rome that burned down nearly half the city. And when he did that, he needed a scapegoat. So he blamed it on this new cult of Christians. These people that everybody in the Roman Empire that were of a pagan background. Now, not those who have a Jewish background, but those of a pagan empire, they saw this new cult of Christianity as the strangest, weirdest, most corrupted group that could ever be imagined. In fact, from their perspective, they didn't understand some of the basic things that we enjoy, that we think are just totally commonplace, like what we just did at the Lord's Supper. Because the pagans heard, well, their Lord, their leader was Jesus, and they drink his blood and eat his body. So they thought Christians were cannibals. Not only that, they heard that we were always having love feasts. That's what they called a potluck in ancient times. And that seemed very strange to them. So because they come from a pagan mindset that had a lot of sensuality mixed in with their religious services in the temple of Diana and other places, they thought that there were these 
big carousing immoral parties that took place with the Christians. Christians were seen as a completely strange cultish group of people. They wanted to spend every moment of every day with each other. They were constantly together. They were seen as a, an outside group of strange, corrupted people. And because of that, because of that suspicion, Nero will blame that fire in Rome on those weirdos, those Christians. And the Roman people will believe it. And a powerful persecution in Rome and around Rome. Now, it's not going to be a worldwide persecution until the 90s when Domitian institutes the mandatory emperor worship. But in the time, in the 60s, Rome and the areas around Rome and then some isolated other places that were very heavily influenced by Rome, particularly Roman provinces like Philippi and other places, this persecution would be very intense. Christians would lose their lives. History tells us that Nero murdered Christians right in front of his parties, even lit them on fire alive to light a dinner party as entertainment. That's the world these people live in. And it's very important that we wrap our minds around that because we have never lived in a world like that. But we are not promised that we won't. In fact, the scriptures are pretty clear. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Consider it pure joy when you face trials and temptations of all sorts. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus tried to prepare us. I've been reading a book recently about the Battle of Bataan in World War II. The Philippine archipelago, is that how you say that? Archipelago, chain of islands. There are thousands of islands in the Philippines. But the primary island, the largest island, is the island of Luzon. And the Philippines were vitally important to the conflict between Japan and the United States and Australia and all the powers in World War II in the Pacific. And immediately following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Japan engaged in the second phase of their battle plan, which was they invaded, I think it was on January 7th, 1942, the islands of the Philippines, starting with the island, the main island of Luzon. America had 106,000 men stationed on the island of Luzon. Their commander was Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur could not stop the might of the Japanese army with the might of the Japanese navy because America pretty much didn't have a navy just days after Pearl Harbor, less than two months after Pearl Harbor. And so what took place is they fought kind of a rear guard action. The... 106,000 troops on the Isle of Luzon for several months. The battle would last from January 7th to well into April, about three or four months. And they would fight, they would retreat. They would fight, they would retreat. They would fight, they would retreat. And MacArthur got on a plane and he left. But he promised the soldiers left 
on Luzon. Oh, we'll be back for you. Finally, they retreated to what is known as the Bataan Peninsula. And there they made their stand. And soon they ran out of food. And then they ran out of medicine. And then they started running out of water. And then they all started falling ill with malaria. It's the Philippines. Because they didn't have any medicine. It was said that soldiers would man their posts and would fall over of exhaustion and weakness from hunger. Until finally, they realized MacArthur's not coming back for us. Their commanders surrendered in what was the largest mass surrender, the most humiliating surrender in American military history. 76,000 men became Japanese prisoners of war. And if you've studied any history of World War II, you know that the, one of the ugliest periods, in fact, you can only find a few movies, you know, they make a lot of movies about World War II battles, Battle of the Bulge, you know, Normandy, all this. You won't hardly find anything made in recent times about the Battle of Bataan because the Battle of Bataan is almost forgotten based upon what happened after it. It was called the Bataan Death March. And over the course of several days, the Bataan Peninsula, which is at the very bottom of the island, they would march for days and days, those 76,000 soldiers north to their concentration camps, their prisoner of war camps. And the conditions under which these men were treated, they weren't treated with dignity. Under the Japanese way of looking at life, the samurai code that was still being honored in the 1940s, to surrender meant you were a coward. Japanese didn't surrender. They took their own life before they'd surrender. That's what a real warrior in their mind did. So they took 76,000 men captive. And on the Bataan Death March, these men would walk all day in a blazing hot tropical sun. They were being attacked by all sorts of bugs, mosquitoes. They were suffering with malaria. And they were without any food and not allowed to drink. In fact, the Japanese soldiers that I read about, that several on the death march, as they would walk, the reason it's called the death march is if you did anything out of line and if you tried to help any of your fellow soldiers, they would ruthlessly beat you and sometimes gore you with a bayonet. Men would fall. Your buddy that you've been through basic with and you've been in the army with and you sat in a foxhole with and you fought side by side, he'd fall right beside you. And if you stopped to help him, you were beaten till you couldn't move. And then they'd leave you. Because every night behind them came the death marchers. And as they were huddled together at night, they could hear behind them on the road shots as the cleanup men came and just killed the men who couldn't make it any farther. In fact, all of those who were in charge of the Bataan prisoners of war were convicted of war crimes after the war because of the horrors that they made men endure. The only ones who really made a difference were those who escaped. There were a few. But to escape, there wasn't 
They couldn't really look to the Philippine people for help because the Japanese would murder any Philippine that was known to help American soldiers. So these guerrillas would fight out of the forests and fight out of the jungles and the conditions they'd endure. They would crawl through mud. They would live in the most inhumane conditions. But they pushed on. They found what food they could. They fought. They hid. They fought some more. They hid some more. On and on and on. Because there was no reprove. There was no retreat. There was no... Because they didn't have an enemy they could surrender to. Because when you surrendered, you weren't treated with mercy. When you surrendered, you were treated with cruelty. It was better to fight and die than to surrender. Now you may wonder what that has anything to do with 1 Peter chapter 1. It has everything to do with 1 Peter chapter 1. Because Peter will use this language to address all of us who are in Christ. Pilgrims, strangers, foreigners. You see, to the Romans, those believers look just as different. And I'll tell you, the Romans weren't any nicer than the Japanese were. The Romans would, would enact such brutal justice in their mind upon the Christians. And the thing is, is the truth of it all, regardless of this 200-year experiment we've had in human history, this anomaly in human history, where we've had things like religious freedom, and we talk about being able to come and to worship our God freely without any kind of persecution. That's well and good, and I'm glad we've had it. And I thank the Lord that I grew up under that. But the thing is, that's never been promised. And that's an anomaly in human history. That's not the standard for God's people. The standard for God's people is you fight and you hide. And you fight and you hide. Because the devil doesn't treat prisoners well. He doesn't. And this life is a war zone that is not controlled by our Father in the fullest sense. The Bible says the devil is the prince of this world. That he's roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And if you don't believe the devil's got control of this world, then you've been living under a rock. And you don't have a television or the internet. And you probably can't read because everywhere you look, you don't have to look very hard at all to see who's in control here. That shouldn't surprise us. Because we are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are foreigners. We are citizens of another country. And we are soldiers in the army of God. You see, we, 
we lose our perspective sometimes. We gather here as God's people because of the fact he gave us the church so that we have a group, we have a people to encourage and to stir us up and push us on because when we go out there, we're in the midst of the enemy. And I don't mean people. People are used by the enemy, but people are the objective. We are in the midst of the real enemy and you can't see them, but they're there. They may be in this room right now. The devil and his minions, the Bible calls it in Ephesians 6, the princes, principalities, and powers of wickedness in the heavenly places. It says we don't struggle against flesh and blood. We struggle against them. And they are here. They are everywhere. And they're working every day with one purpose. I hear people make statements, and I wonder if we just don't think about the spiritual world or wonder about the spiritual world. They'll say, well, the... The devil's just trying to get a hold of Washington. No, he isn't. He's always had that. That's not where the fight is. Or the devil, he's tri- the devil's just taking hold of Hollywood. No, he isn't. No, he hasn't. He's always had them. This is his world. He has control of the media. He has control of entertainment. He has control of politics he has control of the military he has control of everything this is a foreign world to us we are behind enemy lines what we don't need to do behind enemy lines is pretend that we're not and that's what Peter's point is and I've had a long introduction, so we're going to get through half of tonight, and then we'll do a, one of our things we always do, which is continue on. But you see, as he starts off here in verse 10, he's encouraging us to understand who we are and to live purposefully as soldiers of the cross, as strangers, as foreigners. And he'll start in verse 13. Well, we, we can look starting in verse 10. Of a salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to those who were ministering the things that now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Now he says in verse 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Think about that language. We don't typically talk that way, do we? Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says here, gird up the loins of your mind, fix your hope, fix your hope. Now when I think of that idea of gird up, you know, that text, that phrase will be used in other places in Scripture. In Ephesians 6.14 it says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with the gospel of truth. To gird, I mean, that means to, to haunch up, right? I mean, to pull up and to tighten 
to secure it. So he says, we need to be a people because we are pilgrims, because we are strangers, because we are foreigners, because we are soldiers behind enemy lines, we need to be a people who have fixed our minds and fixed our hope. See, those soldiers who fought those guerrilla tactics until finally the island was taken back over, over a year later, by American forces, they, all they had to hope in was hope. They just had to continue to fight and to hang on because they knew MacArthur may not have come back yet, but he was coming back again. So their day, this is what a day was for a guerrilla warrior. I'm going to survive one more day. I'm going to do what I can to hurt the enemy. I'm going to do what I can to stay alive because all I need to worry about for today is to survive today. Because MacArthur may be coming back tomorrow. So he tells them, you fix your hope. How does he say to do this? It's a disciplined mind, a sober mind. You see, when you're behind enemy lines, you don't have a lot of time for the silly things in life, do you? You know, it's not a time for leisure. I don't think they probably had a lot of those, you know, shirts versus, versus skins volleyball games at the guerrilla camp. Do you? No, because every day was about focusing on survival. And I know what they didn't do is they didn't have silly, petty arguments. You know, they're sitting in a foxhole and the Japanese bullets are flying around. Well, I don't think you look very good in that green. I, I, I don't, you know... Ridiculous things. See, the only soldiers who reduce their life to those petty concerns are ones that aren't in combat. Christians never have those moments because we live behind enemy lines. Now, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy ourselves. That doesn't mean we don't have time of... of but it means that we have a consecrated heart and a focused mind and we use every day to try to advance the cause of our Lord who's coming back. We use every day for the kingdom and to survive until the day he returns. The language is to gird up your mind. That, that is a purposeful thing. It takes conscientious effort. And so when everything is shaky around us, we rely on that which we know is dependable. You know what soldiers that are in combat, especially behind enemy lines, you know, they, they, when they bunk down in a foxhole or if they can find a place under a tree, do you know what their sleeping companion is? It's not a stuffed animal brought from home. Soldiers sleep with their rifle. Don't they? Why? Now, not soldiers in the barracks, back at the base, back at home. But when you're behind enemy lines, there's comfort in having that one weapon. You see, we, if we live behind enemy lines and we know it, how will that affect how we 
see the word of God. It's, a, it's the only dependable thing. The only thing that soldier can rely upon if he faces the enemy at a moment's notice, he can rely upon that weapon. But yet, at times, the word of God can become, oh, I don't know, secondary to us. At times, we have Bibles that you know, don't collect dust after a time. But if we really understand where we are, if we could just have one minute, I, I wonder what it would be like. You know, the Bible three or four times talks about Lord, the Lord opened their eyes. Remember Elisha in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, his servant, the Lord opened his eyes and he saw the fiery chariots. Balaam, his eyes were opened and he saw the angel guarding the way with a, with a fiery sword. And there were several times in Scripture. I wonder what it would be like if the Lord could open our eyes just for one minute, just for one minute. Because we see a gathering of believers. But I wonder what else we would see in this room. Maybe angels? Most likely. With this many believers, can you imagine that the ministering spirits to believers aren't here? Hey, fellas. Can't see you, but we know you're here. But do you think they're the only ones here? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about that a believer is most likely never alone? That perhaps never one moment in your entire life have you completely been by yourself? It's because we don't think like a soldier. And we really don't admit where we are. Pilgrims, strangers, foreigners, enemy combatants on foreign soil. That was point through one of four. But everybody's going to go home and Google the Bataan Death March tonight. I know. But when you do, I want you to think about, before we talk about this again next week, what must it have been like what was it like for believers who were the original recipients of Peter's letter? And I wonder if the enemy has accomplished his greatest feat by simply convincing enemy soldiers, his opponents, God's people, convincing them that there's not really a war going on. Maybe that's the most effective thing the devil can do. Because when I read my Bible, every time God's people went up against the forces of the devil, the devil doesn't have a chance. Tonight, if you look at your life and you maybe have had rose-colored glasses as you look at the world around us, maybe you've gotten too caught up in all this stuff Maybe you've forgotten who we are and where we are. If you need to make any change, come right now as we stand and as we sing.